If you have your copy of the Word of God, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Mark this morning and turn to Mark 15. Mark's message at the end of his gospel is that Christ's death meant life. It's summarized in verse 39, so just read along with me. Verse 39, it says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This morning is about seeing what the centurion saw. Perhaps the most unlikely person To see grace in the face of Christ was this Roman Gentile centurion. It's a dramatic scene. It's not the scene that you typically see portrayed in TV, movie, or even historic art. Jesus, according to history, would have been pinned to a seven-foot-high cross, perhaps a T-bar, gasping for air, bleeding and dying, but at seven feet, putting himself virtually face-to-face with a centurion. Eyeball-to-eyeball as Jesus is dying, he is overseeing the Son of God's execution. The centurion would have been Roman in full loyalty to Caesar over a hundred legionaries or men. A soldier who was no doubt part of the battalion of 600 men who had bowed in mockery before Christ. They stripped him. They put that robe on his back after scourging him, ripped it off. They bound together the crown of thorns, twisting it together, jamming it on the Lord's head, taking a mocked up staff and beating it down into his brow. They spat on him. They mocked him. They, they bowed down saying, hail king of the Jews. Matthew 7 gives that account. 27. A Gentile overseeing the execution, gazing opposite one another. After all of this, and as Mark puts it in verse 33 of Mark 15, it says, when the sixth hour, now this is in the Jewish calendar, noon, at noon, something had come. It says, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're talking about the hours between noon and three. Jesus had been nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. after a mock trial, a trial which was a complete sham all night long just to get him crucified, an innocent man on a cross, 9 a.m. And then suddenly at noon, everything goes dark. Darkness is all over the land and it's a three hour phenomenon of darkness. Matthew 27, 
51 says the earth was quaking, rocks were splitting, tombs were opening, and Christians were rising from death. People were running up and reporting that their temple was breaking in half. Chaos was all around, all while this Gentile centurion was staring in the face of Jesus. And I sort of see implied here, he's oblivious to everything else that's going on around him. Just entranced with Jesus. Now he's got a job to do to oversee Jesus' death to ensure this. But I get the sense that as chaos is breaking all around, a serenity is welling up in his heart. He's seeing a great contrast in Jesus' face compared to everything else that's happening. The world is shaking and quaking in violence on the outside, and this centurion soldier is awakening on the inside. Think of our world news. Bombs are going off. People are dying. It's like, where is the new geographic location, the new city, the new moment where someone is killed? It's becoming normalcy to us. Great cathedral burned to the ground recently. The world around us is chaotic. And yet in Christ, there's peace inside welling up. That's what was beginning to spark in this centurion's Heart, it sparked the confession of verse 39. Truly, this man was the son of God. Truly, aletheos, meaning it is a conviction that the centurion is saying at the end of this gospel of Mark, Mark is communicating through a Gentile voice. Think of this. It's amazing. He began his gospel in Mark 1.1. With this, because these are evangelistic letters, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, it, it begins saying that this is about the son of God. And then it's ending with verse 39, in a sense, a parenthetical thought, truly, this is the son of God. It's all real. Jesus is breathing out his last and final breath. He breathes out and expires. And in some way, the way he died caused life in the heart of the centurion. Was it in his eyes? Was it in his words? Was it in his demeanor, the tumultuous surroundings that opened his heart? What in the way that Jesus died moved this man to faith? What moves anyone to faith in Jesus Christ, to convictional commitment to Jesus Christ? Not just Faith in faith, not just saying I'm of faith. Uh, You believe in something I believe. No, convictional belief, convictional commitment to Jesus Christ, no matter what. What was it in the way that this man died that sparked that in this man's heart? What did the centurion see in the one man, Jesus that caused the centurion to believe. Ironically, the first thing the centurion saw, according to verse 33, at noon anyway, was darkness. This is about the centurion seeing something, but he's seeing Jesus in the dark. Do you ever, as a little kid, have the lights go out and suddenly you can't see your hand in front of your face, right? That's an eerie feeling. 
especially when you're younger. I mean, not when you're older, but when you're younger, I mean, it's just disorienting. And so this would have been a disorienting time when the sun should have been shining brightest in Jerusalem, which is longitudinally Southern California, when the sun should have been brightest, everything goes pitch black. Some claim that this was a solar eclipse, some sort of natural event. Uh, The darkness instead was God's doing though, we know, right? Science wouldn't even argue for a solar eclipse like this. Science says that solar eclipse lasts six minutes usually, and it's very precise in its calculations, at least in what it espouses. There's a prediction June 13th, uh, 2132. There'll be the longest solar eclipse since July 11th, 1991. That'll be six minutes and 55 seconds. This was not a solar eclipse. There's also a scientific prediction coming that there'll be one that will last seven minutes and 29 seconds on July the 16th, 2186. Who cares, right? Anyway, (laughs) but the computations and measurements are over millennia. 4,000 BC to 6,000 AD, they're thinking this through. But really, it's just the idea that science wouldn't even say that this was a solar eclipse. This was a phenomenon. It was a supernatural intervention of judgment. It was a foreshadowing of the judgment to come. There had been historic judgment against Egypt at the Exodus. Exodus 10, 21 to 23 says, all Egypt was in dark for three days. Isaiah 13:10 talks about how in the future constellations will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising Joel 2:10 earth will the earth will quake before them and tr- the heavens will tremble sun and moon are darkened Amos 5:18 woe to you who desire the day of the Lord why would you have the day of the Lord it is darkness and not light Amos 8:9 Uh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth at broad daylight. Revelation 16, 10, a fifth angel poured out its bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Matthew 22, 13, speaking of hell judgment. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Who's ever heard of the story of William, I'm sorry, Ernest Shackleton, Uh, The ship, the Endurance, as he went to the Southern Pole um, from South America, 1914 was the time he took his crew to Antarctica and he wanted to cross the South Pole by foot, but they were stuck in the ice at Elephant Island. And when they were stuck there, they realized that there was no escape unless Ernest and a smaller crew went on the lifeboat and tried to sail for rescue. The crew that remained, they suffered cold. They were frostbitten. Many lost limbs and hands and fingers. Uh, But on their account, they ultimately were rescued. But what they said was worse of all, not the cold, not the starvation, not the frostbite, but the desolation of the polar night, the darkness. On May 19, 1780, at 10 o'clock in the morning on the eastern seaboard, it was recorded that there was such a fog haze that moved in from the Atlantic Ocean that by noon, schools were dismissed. There was darkness over the eastern seaboard. Candles were lit. Torches were set in the streets. Birds went to roost. Fear turned to panic. There was a premature nightfall. What is going on? Ministers were calling in for church services, calling this the day of judgment. 
In Hartford, Connecticut, both houses of legislature were meeting, but one of them quickly dismissed since its members thought the world would end at any moment. But the other body continued in great distress. Finally, one man, a Christian, stood up and he said, look, let's not disband. This could be the day of reckoning. It was Mr. Davenport, a Christian. He said, Mr. Speaker, this is either the day of judgment or it is not. If it is not, there is no need for adjourning. If it is, I desire to be found doing my work. I move that candles be brought in and that we proceed to business. So the meeting went on. All that to say, darkness is disorienting. It was all around, but don't miss the metaphor of the darkness of soul on the inside. The centurion, before he believed, like anyone else, has a darkness inside that's equally or if not more disorienting. When you don't know which way is up, it's dark inside. You need the light. Being lost in sin is dark Facing God's wrath or impending judgment is dark. A guilty conscience is dark. Darkness means judgment. That's what the scene begs. Verse 34, there was also desolation. Not just darkness, but desolation. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These details, again, answer the question, what was it that was bringing the centurion to faith in Christ? He's got this dark, opaque sort of uh, gaze into the face of Christ. And then with a loud voice, Jesus summoning all of his strength to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an amazing statement when you think in terms of Jesus being fully human, but also fully God. What kind of separation are we talking about between Christ, the son of God and his father? Well, in terms of sin, there was a separation because God is holy and all of our sins were laid on Christ. What I see here is this one on the cross, the son of God is reflecting on David's turmoil in his moment of need. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse one. If you were to look there, it's the most richly messianic Old Testament Psalm that we have. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is David, a believer, a man after God's own heart in human struggle at your deepest, darkest moment of weakness. Where do you run? Where do you go when there are no answers? Mama's not going to help you. Daddy's not going to help you. Your pastor's not going to have an answer for you. Your friend is not reachable. Where do you go? You go to the living Lord through scripture. You get on your knees and say, God, speak to me. Give me a word. And that's what Jesus, the son of God did. He resonated with David. And he said, this is how I feel, God. Clinging to trust while feeling deserted is how one person put it. Jesus, is he confused about what's happening? Is he confused? Is he really wondering why his heavenly father, he senses a separation there? John 18, four begs to differ. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. That's what it says. In Jesus' desperation, he's quoting David, though David was not going through what Jesus went through. Jesus was going through something incalculably worse. 
He's still quoting this psalm. Listen to verse 7 of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make mouths, they, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Psalm 22, 14. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in my breast. That's what's going on in Jesus' mind as he's suffering. This is what Christians should do. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, verse 16, for dogs encompass me. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and and for my clothing they cast lots. Look at verse 19 though. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. So even when Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? I guarantee you there is the biblical balance of David in his heart where he knows that God is still near. God is distant in terms of the sin separation, but he never really left. He's there. Oh, you be my help. Come quickly to my aid. The Psalms are amazing. And I just want to give you this as a practical tip. Go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms often and regularly, and I'll tell you why. That is God's gift to you to give you language to pray. You say, oh, I don't want to read other books of the Bible. I just love the Psalms so much. There's a reason for that. There's a functional reason. I'm not saying that all scripture isn't profitable. It all is, and you need it all. But don't neglect the regular use of the Psalms. It's a songbook to your heart. And there's a reason that half of it says, where are you God? And the other half says, my hope is found in you, O God. It's both all the time, always. And that's the heart of Jesus. Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us. In Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin. Hebrews 12.2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there was this sense of forsakenness and admixture of joy in the heart of Jesus in that moment. I guarantee you that centurion saw it and was blown away. How many crucifixions had this centurion seen? This was different. This was dramatically different. The gospel is different. It's complicated to comprehend that God, the father was punishing his son for sins while his son was absorbing these sins and punishments for us. God was there. Well, there was darkness. There was desolation in verses 35 and 36 says there was derision. Look at this. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. That's just mockery. They didn't think Jesus was calling Elijah. You know what that was? That was their way of mocking the plan, saying, where did Elijah, when when was he supposed to come? Wasn't he your forerunner? They completely missed the point of John the Baptist fulfilling that mission on behalf of Elijah, fulfilling that prophecy. They just missed it. Where's Elijah? Hey, Jesus, and verse 36, by the way, look at this. It says, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed. And, and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Hey, let's, let's give Jesus some nourishment. So maybe he will do one more trick for us. That's what they're saying. They wanted some magic to happen. They believed that some miracles had taken place, but it was magic. And they wanted one more magic trick. 
Let me tell you something. Supernaturalism does not save. God does supernatural things, but the saving grace of the gospel is what saves. People can get wowed by all kinds of things that happen, but that's not saving grace. These people were wowed. They were mocking Jesus. Now, Jesus did drink from that sponge. He had not drunk from the wine mixed with gall because he wanted to feel the full force of the physical punishment on the cross on our behalf. He wanted to be fully cognizant of what was going on, what he was doing, why he was there. But at that point, he did drink because he was thirsty, according to John's gospel. He drank so that he would be refreshed. Well, there was darkness, there was desolation, there was derision, and then deliverance, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, again, loudness, he's summoning strength and breathed his last. What did he utter? John nineteen thirty helps us. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, which is to tell us die. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus knows at this point, by the way, that the redemption was accomplished. Jesus was not confused. He had accomplished Redemption for you and me. Redemption, spiritual redemption, not just the redemption of an athlete, not just the redemption story of something in common grace that we hear about. Those redemption stories are inspiring, but this is an eternal redemption applied to you and me. Don't miss it. Think about it. Your sins are forgiven because of what happened, because of what Jesus confirmed in that moment. It is finished. And he breathed his last, literally, he expired, he breathed out. Jesus was in control of the exact timing of his death. He did die of asphyxiation, of suffocation. He did die of blood loss. He did die where his heart broke apart, which was uh, verified by the spear going in his side and water coming out. Jesus did die of a broken heart. But Jesus was cognizant of his death. And just like you see someone in critical condition that's ready to die, He let go. He let go. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He let go. His death came voluntarily, as one person put it. He refused to use his miraculous power to fend off death. Satan didn't kill Christ. Something done against his will. This was not a satanic temporary victory. Jesus' death was according to God's will. And the reason I bring that up is simply this. Jesus' death is grace to you. Please don't miss that. Dying is living here. John ten eighteen. no one takes it from me, speaking of his death, but I lay it down of my own accord. He chose to die for you and he chose to die for me. He says, I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. First John three sixteen. by this we know love. This is love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Well, there's darkness, there's desolation, there's derision. And then deliverance and then dominance. Look at verses 38 and 39. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in the way in saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
There's dominance here. There's God's holiness here. Again, the earth is quaking. The temple is breaking. And then there is a supernatural tearing. Now, the curtain that was torn, you have to understand, was woven together in a way in Jewish artistry that it made this curtain substantial, like a wall. This was a wall curtain. It was God's barrier between the outer and inner court of the Holy of Holies. And the earthquake didn't break the uh, curtain apart. It didn't rip in all different directions. This was a supernatural, precise ripping from top to bottom. It meant things. It meant that the sacrificial system was being fulfilled. It meant that corruption in the system that had gone on was being shut down. It meant that forever believers have access to the Holy of Holies. It meant that we are at peace with God and we have access to God the Father in a relationship. This is the point of Hebrews, our study and regularity on Sunday mornings. We enter into the holy place. We go through the curtain, through his flesh, we draw near with a true heart and a pure heart, full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10 speaks of that. This leads us right back to where we began. Why did the centurion believe? It's because he saw a contrast. And in the contrast of the world breaking apart, he looked into the face of Christ and saw a sacrificial lamb dying for him. This centurion would have been someone known for his strength, known for his physicality, known for his leadership. He was a symbol of Caesar's might that is strength by force. And so the complete contrast of that is displayed in Christ, who is God, very God, laying it all down in sacrifice for him. The clarity of the gospel for him in that moment was unmistakable. The father had declared him the son of God. Demons had declared Jesus the son of God in the temple. Peter had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But this centurion's confession is perhaps the most amazing. It's so unlikely. Jesus came not to save through conquest, but through suffering. That's what this man got. He understood it. It's irony salvation that came through grace and weakness. The light dawned in his heart, 2 Peter 1.19. Something more sure, the prophetic war, um, word of God. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. That's conversion. That's conversion. Things don't have to be so dramatic outside for the drama of the conversion to happen, the dramatic conversion to happen on the inside. This is conversion. It's where the lights come on. But I don't want to stop there this morning. And I'm really glad to look down at my clock and it says 1130. Because that's sermon number one. We have a second sermon this morning for you this morning. You think I'm kidding, but I am dead serious. Because centurions and Gentiles who don't know Christ need to come to faith by seeing Jesus' death as life. But believers need to also grow in grace and grow in their faith by believing in Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. All unbelievers need to believe now that Jesus has died, was buried, and raised. They need to believe in that gospel. But believers, too, need to be encouraged in the resurrection 
And that's the rest of the story. And I, it being Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I had to take us through the entire account. So let's do that. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joses and Salome. There's women there. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is an amazing statement on women and their faith in the gospel. Spiritually, men and women are equal. There's no difference in who's regenerate and who's not. There's no next level there. There's women who are beautifully loyal to Christ as it's displayed here. They're loyal and they're, they're like this. They're loyal in the face of danger. Loyal in the face of danger. It was dangerous to be associated with Christ. Now, there were some men who took some risk as well. Look at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Again, this is a politician who's associated under the rule of Caesar, and he's putting himself out there, says who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion. I think this is the same centurion. He asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb. This is all on Friday. This is Friday evening that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose said or saw where he was laid Then chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the Mary, the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Look at what's going on here. What you have is Joseph of Arimathea. You also have Nicodemus. They're coming to um, honor the Lord, even in his death. They had come to faith in Christ. They were believers in Christ and they laid him in the tomb. It says that Joseph of Arimathea actually rolled the stone and put it in place. And, you know, they had wrapped Jesus up and anointed him, but the job was not done. There were women who saw that there was more that needed to happen. The anointing of their king that had taken place where Mary Magdalene, I believe, was the demonized woman who had been delivered by Christ, who had had the the demons exercised out of her, came to Simon the Pharisee's home. Do you remember that account? And she broke open the alabaster of oil and anointed Jesus' head and cried over Jesus' feet and anointed Jesus. And Judas Iscariot 
threw a fit and said, why are we wasting all of this money that we could be giving to the poor? John's gospel account says that all Judas wanted was the money for himself. But that anointing, that expression of anointing was continuing. It was what Joseph of Arimathea hadn't finished. These women now were doing. Who were these women? A former demoniac, Mary Magdalene, a mom of an apostle, the son of Alphaeus, James the Less, a mom of two apostles, James and John, the sons of Bonerges or Thunder. All three women loved Jesus and all three were acting as eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, whether they knew it or not. None of them really believed that Jesus wasn't going to be there, by the way. They all thought Jesus' body was still going to be there. They could now do some work because it was past the Sabbath. They couldn't work on Saturday. So now they're working into the Saturday evening, Sunday morning. And it's morning time. It's dawning, verse 2, it says very early on the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Other gospel accounts harmonize this and say it was really dark outside. It was dangerous. They're, They're showing up around this. Their mission was to anoint Jesus with a flask of oil and spices. Nobody thought. He wouldn't be there. Some would suspect that he could be stolen, but the apostles at this point, the disciples, and even the women weren't really clear on the resurrection. They weren't embracing what Jesus had predicted. And frankly, verses three and four says that they were uncertain how they would even complete the task at hand. This is a beautiful picture of faith. Uh, These women likely were not strong enough to move the stone away that was in front of the tomb. But they were there to try. Look at verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Verse 4 says it was a very large stone. Very large. Joseph had rolled it, rolled it in front of the mouth of the tomb, Mark fifteen forty six. But they were seeing that the stone actually had been rolled away. It's interesting. J.C. Ryle, one of my church history heroes, he said this about their situation and their state of mind. It says, what a striking emblem we have in this simple narrative of the experience of many Christians, how often believers are oppressed and cast down by anticipation of evils. And yet in the time of need, find the thing they feared removed and the stone was rolled away. Isn't that amazing? You go, well, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try this, but I know it's not going to work because this is this. There's going to be this attack. There's going to be this problem. But you just in faith, watch this, in courage, you move towards what you think is the right thing to do. These women, they didn't even believe Jesus had raised from death. They were just working within within the context of their faith at that time, doing the best that they knew how to do to honor the Lord. They weren't all the way clear, but there's grace in the resurrection. There's grace in the fact that 
the stone had been rolled away. God was removing every obstacle so that they could grasp the resurrection. Look at verse four and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The tomb had been opened by an angel, no doubt, not to let Jesus out. You've heard this before, but to let the people in to see that he wasn't there, right? So they were alarmed. Verses five and six, it says, entering the tomb, they had to stoop down and look up. Verse four says, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. He's probably the one that rolled the stone away. He was dressed in white, a white robe. Other gospel accounts say it was a, a dazzling brilliance, Luke 24, four. This would have been one of the two angels. There was another angel, according to other gospel accounts, who was there. Mark is focusing on this one, sitting on the stone, no doubt. Uh, the gospel of Mark 16.5, it says he was on the right side, dressed in a white robe. So there's a brilliance there, and they were alarmed. Angels, again, though depicted and portrayed here as human-like, they're speaking and recognizable. Don't underestimate their powerful presence. Just think of Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1. Think of uh, 2 Thessalonians, angels coming as ministers of fire, Revelation 4 and 5. There's a brilliance there. Even John errantly, as an apostle, inappropriately tried to worship an angel, it says in Revelation. And yet, we entertain angels unaware, as Hebrews 13, too. This angel is declaring an eternal victory, not unlike Jesus' birth. It's victory. And they were alarmed. They're alarmed. They're not expecting what God's will is playing out to be. They're coming in faith. They're coming in courage. They're coming in the dawning of dark dark circumstances there there's conspiracies that robbers have come and taken Jesus away and they walk right into a supernatural moment where angelic beings are deflecting away from themselves saying don't think about us think about the message that I'm going to say do not be alarmed you seek Jesus of Nazareth you You're seeking the right one, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who was literally dead. He has risen. He is not here. And by the way, come, come closer. See the place where they laid him. The idea is where, where the burial wrappings were come, come inside the tomb to this area where the body would have been laid. And John's gospel says, it looks like Jesus, when he raised, he came right out of those linen cloths so that the cloths just just remained as if the body went right through them. And that's what happened. The headpiece, the burial cloths, they all were in the form of a body that had come through those cloths. And so it wasn't that the body was unwrapped. It wasn't that robbers had, had taken the whole thing out. Something supernatural had taken place. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact was to be confirmed. Look at verse seven. They have a mission now. They have something that they need to do with this message. Yes, they're alarmed. Yes, they are afraid. 
but they need to do something with what they've heard. And they're paralyzed with this message. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So what did they do? Verse eight, they went out and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They ran out of there, but they didn't run straight away to the disciples, did they? They were terrified. And do we so removed from this moment so many years away, do we just sort of say, why did they do that? Why did they freeze up? I don't know that we would do any better. The men had tucked tail and had run away. The disciples had fled the scene when Jesus was taken captive. The women at least were there, right? But they they were freezing up. They were terrified. It says that they were trembling, filled with astonishment, which means they were traumas and ecstasis. They were terrified and ecstatically bewildered. They were gripped with fear. But in the midst of the fear, don't miss the grace that's even found in these last verses. But go tell his disciples and notice, and Peter. Why did they say, why did the angel say, and Peter? You've probably heard this before. It's because Peter had specifically directly denied Christ three times. You have Judas Iscariot who did the great denial of Christ, who once guilt took over, was overwhelmed with worldly sorrow and guilt and was in a massive tailspin digressing all the way to hell. You have Peter, by contrast, who denied the Lord in the moment, a crime of passion versus a premeditated murderer. His crime of passion, he denies the Lord three times. But there's grace in godly sorrow. His tears were tears of repentance. He didn't just feel bad for being caught. He was cut to the quick and he was repenting of his sins. And because of his repentance, there was grace. Go tell Peter. Go tell Peter that you can't re-earn favor with me. I'm just importing that. You can't crawl back in your own strength. Peter must have thought, man, my relationship with the Lord is over. Or maybe I could crawl back. No, you can't do that. It's grace that's coming to you. You're coming to me because I died on the cross for the very denials that you made before I died. He died on the cross for those denials. His blood covered those denials. And his blood redeemed Peter. Go tell him that I've been raised from death. So what happened? These women were at a crossroads in their mission. They were stunned. They had a redirected mission. The stone had been removed. The supernatural angels had freaked them out. Jesus was raised and they were challenged to to deliver the message of grace. And they were trembling with astonishment. What happened? Well, Matthew 28 tells us the rest of the story and I can't resist. Matthew 28, 8 to 10, 8 to 10. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And I love this verse. This is just an incredible detail. Verse nine, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. So they're on the way to the disciples to say Jesus is going to be up in Galilee, which is exactly what Jesus said he would do. Go meet me there, disciples. The game plan had already been laid out. But Jesus intercepts the women just to reconfirm them. They were frozen in fear, but they decided to do the right thing. And so Jesus shows up and says, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Verse nine. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. For the centurion, Christ's death meant life. He saw grace for the women and the disciples. Christ's death meant life and Christ's resurrection for them meant grace. It means grace for all of us who believe. You can't save yourself. You can't even keep yourself saved. It's all by grace, right? It's all by grace. It's all what God does for us. It's all Jesus' grace to you, not you saving you. It's Jesus who saves you. It's that simple. It's that simple. Be like the centurion and let go of your pride. Be like the women at the tomb. Let go of your guilt. Be like Peter who says, I can't save myself. I can't forgive myself. Forgiveness is only found in Jesus Christ and his grace alone. That's saving grace. Grace. 